from KPFK in Los Angeles, California, Valley Free Radio in Florence, Massachusetts, WMBR in Cambridge, and biketalk.org worldwide. This is Bike Talk. Bike Talk. Hey, everybody. Hey, Nick. Hi, everyone. Hi, Taylor. Hey, Seamus. Seamus. Good to see and hear you. Yeah. Today's episode has a theme of engagement. And, you know, that's the mission of Bike Talk, which is to engage our listeners, our public (laughs) with, you know, the mission of making streets safe and making them safe for bikes. And so that the world is not dominated by cars all the time. And Seamus, I think you started us off with your- Yeah, this this week I interviewed one of Burbank's newest council members, Nikki Perez, who who really ran on a um, progressive urbanist housing platform and ended up getting the most votes in the in the history of the city of Burbank for city council. Wow. And, and so, yeah. yeah, so I wanted to get her take on bikes and infrastructure, transportation infrastructure. And so, so here's that interview. I am here today with councilwoman Nikki Perez. She is one of the three newest city council members in Burbank, a native Burbankian. Um, Her campaign centered around the housing issues facing all of the greater Los Angeles area, but specifically the issues facing renters. And I want to talk to her today about bikes and active transportation infrastructure. Um, Hello, Nikki. Thank you for joining me on Bike Talk today. We are friends now for a minute, um, and I I want to disclose that to our listeners. Um, We both worked in assembly offices, different assembly offices in, in, the, in the state legislature. That's how I know you. How are you today? Hey, Seamus. I am good. It is good to be here today. Yeah, I'm excited to to be on your show. Look at you moving up in the world. <laughs> <Me>. <laughs> Talking you. to your listeners cross country. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm Seamus and I met through the state legislature and we work for two very amazing legislators who are doing great work in Sacramento and who really span the the width of the valley. So it's great to now be talking about, you know, speaking of transportation and moving across the valley and better ways to do that. So, you know, as a Burbank City Council member, my focus really is is focusing on our transportation infrastructure, our housing and homelessness here in Burbank, and and really moving us into what 21st century transportation and living looks like. Just for listeners in other parts of the country and other parts of the world, Burbank is a, I would say, a mid-sized city, 100,000 people. And when, when folks say the valley, they, they are generally referring to the San Fernando Valley. Um, <laughs> and that, that is what you were talking about there. All right. So my first question, I, I think I think many of us who have been engaged in Burbank for any length of time, especially those of us who lean towards urbanism or prog- progressive urbanism, you know, whatever you want to call it, I, I consider myself a progressive urbanist. They've, we've seen Burbank as, a, as full of potential, but lacking vision, to, you know, to a great extent. Um, there's so much potential for things like multimodal transportation. We have um, we have two Metrolink stops, which are, are major train stops that are underutilized. What are your priorities in regards to the potential in Burbank and how do bikes and bike lanes fit into that? Thanks for the question. Very loaded, but very true. <laughs> um, 
We we do. We have, I think you and I both love this phrase. I think we're sitting on a gold mine of opportunities here in Burbank, in, in the housing sphere, in the transportation sphere. And, you know, again, speaking to folks who may not be familiar with, with Burbank and its location, we are literally 15 minutes from Hollywood. We are, you know, just a hop over the hill. We are 15 minutes from Glendale, from the connection all the way east, where we're a very focal point here in Burbank. And the problem has been that it's very hard to to connect through Burbank in many ways. Um, I think there's there's been resistance in the past to, to that connectivity. And, and a lot of it has been, you know, maybe folks who are afraid of change, but also folks who just don't see the need. But that's why it's important that we start thinking regionally. We have some projects here that are great, but with a little bit more work could be extended. So for example, we have the Chandler bike path, which runs straight through the city, <laughs> east-west, but doesn't have connection that could very easily take it down by the LA River through Long Beach, you know, and, and connecting it to other parts of Glendale, Pasadena. And then we also have um, things like, you know, like you mentioned, the two Metrolink stations. But right now, and this is something that council will be discussing on Tuesday, there aren't a lot of great options to get to those Metrolink stations. Like we, you know, most folks will drive to those stations. Most folks will drive to the airport that we have. We do have a national airport, you know, and right now we don't have really those forms of multimodal connectivity that will get you there. But I am glad to say the infrastructure is starting to make its way. I think a great example is the airport, actually. We're starting to see um, the creation of protected bike lanes there. We're starting to see a focus on different modes of getting to the airport and and making sure that they're also good forms. I'm going to throw in, I know I'm taking us on a curve here, but um, I know that here in Burbank, we we like to do things, but then maybe don't think some of the some of the projects through because we're we're moving into the 21st century just to kind of catch up. And a lot of cities do this, right? I think my street is a great example. I live close to Verdugo where there is a bike lane. It's an unprotected bike lane. It is empty 90% of the time. And I don't think that's due to lack of bike riders. I think that's due to the fact that people don't want to die. <laughs> A hundred percent. I agree with that a hundred percent. I think that, uh, you know, I, I, you know, my kids and I'm not, I'm not, I live not in Burbank, but I live in a neighborhood where um, it is just not safe to let any kids ride a bike. And if you're not letting kids ride a bike, you can't really um, expect other people. I mean, I ride a bike where it's dangerous, but you know, um, <laughs> <You're one million. laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm one of many. How do you think some of the less vocal, more disadvantaged communities, the communities that rely more on public transportation or bikes, you know, when it's not necessarily um, their first choice, probably. Um, How should they be engaged in the process of Burbank's evolution? And like, how do folks weigh the process, the, the process of building out these coalitions? Can you weigh the importance of that against the results that we're that some of us are seeking. You know, we want better bike lanes, we want better bike infrastructure, we want complete streets, but we we are throwing these neighborhoods where um maybe there's not the best engagement. Yeah, I, I hear you. And and I'll get I think a little, you know, personal in talking about this and, and thinking about this question deeply because 
I myself, you know, sometimes felt like maybe I don't belong in the conversation. And in full disclosure to everyone out there, I don't know how to ride a bike. <laughs> but <laughs> that is because I was I was never taught because the idea was that, you know, we lived in a neighborhood where the streets were not necessarily safe to do so. Um, my family didn't exactly have the finances to buy me a bike for, you know, for fun. And it wasn't seen as like a safe and reliable mode of transportation, right? But then I, I, you know, you you actually helped me reframe the idea that, no, that's why I need to be in the conversation. Mm -hmm. Because we need to talk about why certain folks are not using these modes of transportation and why those of us that are, you know, like I, I did use the bus a lot, <laughs> you know, why those of us that are on, on, on different modes of transportation either stop using them or what issues we actually see or what it, what it's actually like, right? Because I think there's a huge difference between um, riding a bike for fun, getting on the bus as a casual need, and, and then when you actually need it to get from Burbank to UCLA, like I did, you know, and then what that actually looks like when you're taking three different buses and it's taking you four hours, right? Mm -hmm. So I think having folks who who utilize these modes of transportation for their daily lives and really seeing the issues that they face. I mean, these are the folks who are bringing up the issues like the Chandler bike path not connecting down to L.A. because mm -hmm. they would use it as transportation versus somebody who's just using it recreationally to cross through Burbank. Mm -hmm. um, and I know this has a little more more to do with with buses, maybe, but. I think bike bike culture comes into play too, because I think we also need to talk to, you know, folks who are potentially like either immigrants or people of color, because for us, a lot of times getting a car has become the American dream. That's very sociocultural, right? Um, when you have a car, you've made it. I think, you know, for my parents, that was probably the happiest moment before me getting a house, which we'll see if I get there, but wow. um I think we need to start thinking about multimodal transportation in a different way. It's not for poor people, for people who have not made it. The, once we change our all of our, you know, government officials, all of our politicians, all of our city staff in, in all the various cities across the nation to think in a way where multimodal transportation is for everybody, it is an equal part of the infrastructure, just like a car, then we're going to get somewhere versus when they think of it as, oh, yes, we need to have some bus systems for, for those people who can't have a car. It should be seen as an equal mode of transportation, right? It, I mean, we don't have to look too, too far. When you look at the East Coast, when you look at D.C., that experience for me, being in D.C. was very different mm -hmm. than hopping on, on the L.A. Metro. Thank you so much. The, you know, the last question that we ask folks is generally, um, you know, where where is your bike Joy. So often we, we most of the people on here um haven't said that they they don't ride a bike or they can't ride a bike. So I don't know um if that question pertains to you, but maybe take a crack at it. Where where would you find bike joy? Because I think what you just said is profound. We're talking about the American dream and, and like what that means. And so you're you're somebody who seems to really understand the importance of bikes, the importance of of um alternative transportation. That, what does that even mean to you, bike joy? What does that sound like? Because I, I mean, for me, it's part of my mental health regimen. Really, is is riding my bike. So for me, it's it's easy to understand. But what does it mean to you? Well, I'm gonna throw a shameless ask and ask that you teach me how to ride a bike. <laughs> nope. I will. I will. I will absolutely do that. 
But but in all seriousness, I think, you know, my my bike joy would be knowing that my kids in the future will have a safe Burbank where they can ride their bikes, where I'm not going to be afraid that they're going to get hit by a car five minutes into getting onto that bike, right? Mm-hmm. And and where they can have that freedom to to utilize it to get across town in, in a safe way, in a way that's protected and, and in a way that is seen just as having them, you know, hop in a car, just as having them get on the bus. It's not seen as any lesser form of transportation. So that's that's my bike dream. Thank you. Thank you so much, Nikki, for being here today. Council, Councilwoman Perez, you rock. Looking forward to everything you're going to do. You rock too, Seamus. <laughs> I'm so glad that I asked her the question about bike joy because um, that answer I thought was incredible that her bike joy is that one day her kids will be able to ride safely in Burbank. Yeah. Um, yeah. Amazing. And, and hopefully she will also, right? Yeah, I'm going to teach her. Yeah. You know, it's funny because we we have to engage our audience to get behind, you know, building these kinds of infrastructures to make the roads safe for everybody. But we also have to engage the audience to keep some of the infrastructure that is there. You know, this was a West Coast story, but Nick has an East Coast story about a organization fighting to keep a bike lane alive. Nick, what do you got there? Uh, The whole town of Pittsfield seems to be on the side of keeping the bike lane, well, except for all the people who are trying to rip it out. And uh, (laughs) people want their commute. uh, Maybe they just don't like the way a protected bike lane looks. It looks great. I love the way a street looks when there's a lane for drivers, a lane for cyclists, and then a sidewalk for people who choose to walk. It's a yeah, complete me. street. I actually heard a great new term, a slowpoke lane. <laughs> it's a lane mm-hmm. that has golf carts and e-bikes, and it's about 20 miles an hour. And they, they're they starting to have them in Manhattan Beach. Huh. Love that. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, here's this interview I did with Nick Russo in Pittsfield about their lane that they want to keep. My day job is a transportation planner at the Berkshire Regional Planning Commission, which is kind of like a county planning agency. Um, But I'm also kind of trying to organize a volunteer group that I'm calling the Pittsfield Community Design Center. It's like a volunteer advocacy group as well. So we'll be kind of deploying that this summer um, in in a bigger capacity. And I know you from around Pittsfield because you had a you have a coffee shop on a bike. That's right. Yeah, I'm also a a, 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 a coffee kiosk owner. Um, yeah, it's a basically a mobile coffee bike that's been modified to include a fridge, a uh, some water tanks, a little canopy, um, and some outlets so I can plug in kettles and, and heaters and grinders. And yeah, I uh, sell coffee by bike at the farmers market in the summer, and then in the winter I take it inside. Um, the bike won't fit inside. So I take it with a wagon into the indoor farmer's market. So you can find me there as well. You're a bike barista. Exactly. I like to say a, a handle barista. <laughs> right on. So we have a thriving bike advocacy scene in Pittsfield. It's blossoming, I think. I'd like to see it thrive even more as we keep going forward. And we have a, a bike lane, which was a big deal, right? It goes right through the, the heart of downtown Pittsfield mm-hmm. yeah that yeah it basically runs the whole length of our our commercial corridor North Street it will connect into like the next commercial corridor Tyler Street um, once that's fully reconstructed it'll have bike lanes and it connects down through kind of the arterial that 
that funnels traffic in and out from our commercial corridor at East Street, and that also received um, painted bike lanes when it was resurfaced. So it's kind of the spine of this growing network of, of bike connectivity through the center of Pittsfield. Now, as we see in so many places, there is a bike lash, as we call it, and <laughs> these sort of, uh, I don't know how you describe them, they're like car activists, they want to rip out the bike lane? Uh, yeah, it happens pretty predictably, at least in North America. I mean, I'm, the same things happened in Europe, too. Um, just kind of 30 years prior, we're just a little bit further behind in the timeline. But I think it's kind of just a natural process that happens in our 21st century world. But yeah, it's it's started to grow now. Um, I think when we first did this, it took everyone by surprise and just didn't quite know what to do with it since it was kind of a big first of bike infrastructure in Pittsfield. Before that, it was really just, you know, you ride in the road um, or on the rail trail that was kind of outside of town. So it, it, it started kind of slowly, but um, it's definitely in the spotlight now over the past year. It's nothing to underestimate. They, they mm -hmm. succeed a lot of the time in ripping mm -hmm. out infrastructure to make streets yes. calmer and make it safer for, for, mm -hmm. for everybody. Yeah, I was kind of surprised hearing um, at a town near us, kind of about 45 minutes away, Northampton, um, they kind of did a similar um, pop-up kind of lightweight experiment with putting in painted bike lanes and parklets on their main street. Um, and those didn't last very long. Um, and I was kind of surprised for being kind of like this, you know, they're kind of known as this uh, hippie liberal college town. Um, and even there, it didn't last. Um, so honestly, I'm, I'm impressed with Pittsfield kind of sticking to their sticking to their guns and, and um, letting this pilot play out for the length that it has. Right. The people who are behind the bike lanes and the street calming are not backing down. They're not folding that easily. Yeah. It's, it's been great to have the mayor say that she wants to see this through um, and a contingent of city council as well. And then the commissioner of public services, of course, is really the one with the boots on the ground and, and wanting to focus on this as a priority so that, this kind of combination here has really been great for the past couple of years. You know, with an election coming up at the end of this year, it's going to be sort of a turning point, I think, um, to see what the next step will be if it really is as big of an issue as we think it is. <laughs> I don't think it's as big of an issue as we think it is. You know, of all the things to worry about in a city like Pittsfield, I wouldn't really put this at the top of the list, but it's something very new that caught people's attention. So here we are. Well, I think we've followed enough of these to know mm -hmm. what needs to happen, right? Yeah, I think it really needs to be put and promoted positively and with a big picture to say what this is all about. The point of these infrastructure changes is to make the city welcoming you know, for everyone um, and to make an interconnected network to get around however you choose. Um, you know, I'd like to be able to come and go as I please, as the, the line I hear a lot. Um, and as someone who doesn't own a car, it uh, makes it difficult for me to get around comfortably and safely as I please. So the more we can create a network for everyone, walking, biking, driving, taking transit, if you're, you know, able-bodied, disabled, young, old, you know, I don't really see a downside to that, especially as we're trying to attract residents to live in Pittsfield in this 21st century age where we don't have 
we're not a company town anymore. We're trying to get talent and families to live in this area when they could choose to live anywhere. So how do we how do we stand out and attract people and say we're welcoming and open for any kind of lifestyle to live here? You know, I think that's really the heart of why we want to do this. It's not an attack on driving or cars or lifestyles or restriction on on freedom or any kind of that. It's, I see it as an expansion of freedom to choose how you want to travel. That's really at the root of it. I feel like when these fights have been won before by, you know, the forces mm-hmm. of safe streets, mm-hmm. uh, the, it's been because we've been able to get people out. These safe streets, these complete streets, what gets them ripped out is mm-hmm. just these really loud, activated uh, minorities of drivers mm-hmm. who want a faster commute mm-hmm. um, by 30 seconds or whatever. <laughs> and the larger community just isn't, involved mm. yeah and I, a, I agree yeah. absolutely and and so it's it's like one of these i don't know do you go door to door or i, I mean I how wish. do you bring up yeah <laughs> i wish um yeah i mean that's kind of what i want to do with this new kind of volunteer community design center is provide a place that is almost like a neutral ground it's not the city which some people might find kind of intimidating or off-putting if you're you know, talking to the city directly about this stuff. Um, And it's not like some kind of private design firm that's being paid to, you know, design something or promote something over something else. It's just kind of this place where I want to have a door open and talk to people about this, like face-to-face, not online, and have a resource where people can like look and touch and, and interact with these things to learn how they work. And yeah, kind of mobilize these volunteers to to reach out to as many stakeholders as possible. If not, you know, citywide door-to-door, at least downtown, at least along the main corridors where these changes are taking place. I think that would be great. Yeah. It gets everyone on the same page, you know, like unified. Um, and we learned that we're kind of trying to work together on this. We really, we want the same thing. We're not trying to fight each other here. You know, we should be unified and wanting people to be safer and get around how they choose, in my opinion. Yeah. And knowing mm-hmm. Pittsfield, it's got to be local people. Mm-hmm. You can't have, oh, yeah, you can't have people from Northampton coming, showing up and trying to mm-hmm. change, change minds or convince anyone. Yeah. I mean, that's where I think I can really make a difference. Like I've, I was born and raised here in Pittsfield, lived here my whole life, except for my five years in college. Um, and really, you know, I think people who know me know, I don't have some sort of like special interest about this or, you know, trying to make a buck or trying to, you know, parachute in and change things like I want to I want to enjoy living here I want to keep living here I want to be able to live here with the lifestyle that I want without having to move to like a big city like Boston or New York or I think Pittsfield can serve that purpose very well it's got the bones for it and it's got the potential for it so I really just want to get more people to join me on that you know all right what's your local paper that we can hear more in the Berkshire Eagle has been good about kind of keeping us up to date on these things. They publish, in my opinion, a, a very well nuanced editorial about this whole thing. Um, they've been publishing letters to the editor, which interestingly have been mostly positive, um, saying to keep, you know, keep working at it. Don't just erase everything. It's obvious that the, the design that's out there right now on North Street is very quickly implemented, which was the intent with the funding program that was used to build it. You know, it, it wasn't a years long drawn out process. It was done in a season. So if we are interested in really moving forward, not backward, 
then we need to take more time and figure out what a design that works even better than the one right now is. And I'm, I'm, I'm okay with admitting that the design right now doesn't always work for me as a cyclist and as a pedestrian and driver, you know, I think we can keep going and making it even better. So I'm okay with that kind of conversation continuing, you know, it's not all or nothing as I've seen people say in the paper, like it doesn't have to be either just four lanes of cars and that's it, or closing the street to cars and putting bikes and pedestrians everywhere. Like there's, there's ways we can strike that balance. I think that we can keep talking about. All right, let's keep talking. Nick Russo, Berkshire Planning Commission. Berkshire Regional Planning Commission is my day job. Pittsfield Community Design Center is kind of my volunteer citizen side that I'm working on developing. So if people are interested in volunteering, um, definitely reach out. We'd love to have you to keep advocating. Pittsfield Community Design Center, how do we reach out? I'm on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. If you search those names, um, if you search that name on those platforms or online, our website is pittsfieldcommunity.design. Thanks, Nick. Keep it up. Thank you so much, Nick. Talk soon. So that was Nick Russo. That's Pittsfield, Massachusetts, near where I live. So I'll be checking in on it and hopefully have some more news from there and see how it's going. Yeah, I hope he wins. So now we have two people who've been on the podcast. Alex Fish, the former city council member and mayor of Culver City, is interviewing Andrea Learned who is also occasional co-host and has her own new podcast called Living Change that's focused on bikes and veganism and a lot of wonderful things and climate leadership. That is her quest. Great. This is Alex Fish, your Bike Talk co-host, and welcome to today's conversation with Andrea Learned, the host of the Living Change podcast and a climate influence advisor. Hi, Alex. It's great great to be here. I also am a previous co-host for Bike Talk. People from way back when might remember that. I'm sure they do because uh, you're very memorable, which is sort of what I wanted to launch into, which is that you're really much more than a podcast host and a climate influence advisor. You're an author. You've done radio. You've been a strategist for some really great causes. And in some, you're a leader on climate education and advocacy. What were some of your first steps and what were some of the biggest steps in getting you on this path into where you are? Yeah, that's a great question. When you get to be this age, it sort of feels long and winding. (laughs) (laughs) But the general through line that I've sort of learned to recite, because I have a kind of weird background, which I guess a lot of us do, the biggest chunk of my career before I got into sustainability and climate was marketing to women. Oddly enough, but actually there's a through line. So I got into marketing to women online, wrote a book on that, was speaking and consulting on that. And so that was a thing. What I realized kind of a couple years into that is that I myself was bored and I wasn't that interested in helping women buy more stuff. <laughs> I wanted to help women make better decisions about everything, which then became sort of business leadership. So I got more into the B2B space and then I connected the dots to sustainability and the ways that women think with empathy and communication skills and sort of psychology is the way that more sustainability leaders overall should be thinking. And then being in the corporate sustainability leadership space and writing for Huffington Post and, you know, kind of getting into that space, 
led me pretty much directly into working on climate action leadership. And that really started uh, in 2015 during COP21, where I was working with a corporate sustainability coalition, doing a lot of their social media engagement for that year. So that's sort of the long and winding path. But to your point about how I'm an advisor, and now I'm a podcast host, and kind of all of this, the whole time I've been doing what I advise my clients and what I hope that my listeners do, which is to build their own social capital. So I have become a quote unquote, you know, air quotes influencer in my own right, because I was just paying attention to building engagement and sharing stuff online and trying to rally the troops, get the audiences thinking we can do this and there's possibility. And these are some great leaders who are doing it. So I love to name and fame leaders, thus the podcast. Talk about social capital a little bit for people who don't know what that means for, you know, in advocacy or um, for elected officials, you know, the types of people who might be listening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the way that you and I met really was on Twitter through bike advocacy. And the way that I got involved in co-hosting Bike Talk at All back in the day was through Lindsay Sturman and just sort of the bike Twitter, you know, heavily kind of California based. I, of course, am in Seattle. But the bike advocacy community is a great example, I think, of how people are going, whoa, this is a way that we can build social capital. Before I go into that, I want to just remind people that, yes, we know that Twitter could be considered a hellhole currently. And we, you know, we don't know where it's going to go. But I think a lot of us that started kind of connecting and building community on this platform are like, we're going to hold on to it until you know who completely ruins it, which it seems like he's paused for now. Anyway, Twitter is a thing and it's a real key tool. And that's why it's always been something I've used in the bike advocacy world. Once someone sort of gets into it and finds a couple of people on bike Twitter, then they go, oh, I can find my Culver City people, right? Or my Seattle people. And they kind of glom together and cheer one another on and share information and build social capital. So there are a lot of people in the bike advocacy movement in bike Twitter who are really well known, maybe they have 1500 followers or whatever, but they're really important 1500 followers. And those followers came to them because they were following the good stuff that that person was sharing and the community they were building and the fact that we are all trying to make the world a better place and we all want to help each other. So social capital is like creating this love and sort of this warm vibe of helping each other out and supporting each other for no particular cause. So you don't have an agenda like tomorrow I want to leverage this this way. You just go, you know what? We're all in this together and we're going to build social capital. And Twitter is a wonderful tool for that. And we can all participate and we can all build our individual little niche sector of influence by building that social capital engagement. And back to the bike Twitter world has been amazing. So I'm glad that we're talking about it on Bike Talk. But that's the short of it. I can go on forever. So I'll always pause to let you continue, Alex. Well, and you've touched on so many things that I want to pursue, you know, including female-led movements, the critical importance of including, of starting from feminism, the effectiveness of that, and the resilience of communities. You've wrapped up all those things, and they're so important to advocacy, but I'm going to go, and we'll hopefully come back to some of it, but with Twitter, it's, it can be a little embarrassing to talk about how effective it is, but I agree with you. It really is. How do you help advocates avoid the trap of only doing online engagement to take to leverage that community that is so sticky and resilient and informative and bring it into the real world and, and make change? Well, it's interesting because mainly people turn to me for how do I even, you know, get familiar with this online. But me personally, right, in terms of having this influence and building this over the years, what that means is 
say I go to a couple of corporate sustainability or climate related conferences in any given year, people already know me, right? I walk into a room and I go, I'm Andrea Learned. And usually there are a couple of people I know already on Twitter. You immediately have a little community. You've already started conversations. You can immediately support one another and kind of say, hey, who do you need to meet? Like kind of act as wingmen for each other to make sure that we all can really benefit from those conferences. So offline, really, right, it's finely tuned sort of strategic networking and you're building that social capital in advance and you can totally apply it offline when you go to these really pointed events to the point of why don't we talk a little bit about AB 2097 in your area, right, which I was involved in and sort of learned about by working with the Livable Communities team and you. Let's talk about that because I had to learn a little bit about it and just realize that that hashtag, there's something about that hashtag. So why don't you tell me how you and your peers use that tag to find one another and support one another? Oh my gosh. Yeah, no, that's... (laughs) Yes. Yes. I mean, you're so right. This is... I've never thought about it. And you just said something so fundamental. It's, you know, my little community is very policy wonkish, right? And so I found a bunch of people who are exchanging information about state legislation. And that's in our world, that's the code. The magic code is what is the legislation. And so you've got all these people with pass SB4 in their Twitter handles uh, (laughs) because we're, you know, they're signifying interest in that legislation. So it's a great, great question. Yeah. And the other thing is, that's then how you build community. So if there's a whole slew of people interested in that, and I would say, finding out what that was about made a whole bunch of us on bike Twitter nationally, right, want to support you and build community with you. Because what I'm always saying, and the reason I'm excited that I've gotten kind of dug in more with the California and the Los Angeles advocacy people in climate and bikes more recently, is what starts in California really can be pointed to as an example and a case study and a success for the rest of the country. You know, you guys are the first to act on electric vehicles. If you guys can do it and you figured out a way to do it, we can all learn from that. So watching AB 2097, and I'm going to say it 18 different ways. <laughs> I was watching it from afar. One of the things that's so fun about the way that I work with people is that I'm an advisor. I'm not deeply involved in California legislature. I'm not deeply involved in whatever, but I can watch the whole picture and I could watch you supporting others, other policymakers with regard to it. I could see the urbanism community kind of nationally jump in and help you out. I could see all that stuff happening. So the kind of the dynamics of building social capital around a single hashtag, which people who aren't on Twitter or don't really understand this wouldn't get. But the power of a hashtag in drawing in community for one topic, but then by default, you all realize that you're heading in the same direction on a whole bunch of other topics. So you follow one another and you keep helping each other on all these other topics. So one hashtag can center and convene a whole bunch of people on a single cause that then becomes a whole slew of amazing climate-focused causes and and affordable housing, et cetera. That is the truth. There's like a perfect circle of uh, common interests there. And it's why I know the name of your state uh, DOT director. It's, right. <laughs> it's, it's why I know who, you know, that we lost uh, here in Los Angeles, a um, transportation planner to Seattle. It's <laughs> So we're all, we are all connected. You're right. And I think in the world that we live in, I mean, I'm a little older than you, like in this world, when we were younger, the world was smaller, but it was more fun. And we kind of knew more people. Now the world is bigger. It's all online. We don't ever, we don't really, I may never meet you in person. Like for all I know, right? We may never, right? We probably will. (laughs) It's a, it's an amazing way to feel. I mean, I feel connected to a lot of city leaders because I'm cheering them on. And one of the things about the way that I do that, and that I advise other people to do it is you cheer others on 
they're heading in the same direction as you. The more of us head in that direction, the more we can point to each other as examples for whoever's like slowing us down on that advocacy. And then the other thing is just building a swirl of loving up for cities that are doing it right and all of that. I am originally, well, I'm not originally from, but my family lives in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and that's where I went to college. And so it's lovely that that's sort of a sub community of mine, right? And I've got social capital there. And so I can love up their sustainability director and anything they're doing with climate. Same thing. I used to live in Burlington, Vermont. I've got these communities and these pockets. So should I ever need to like jump in and dive in and maybe activate, say, a climate people in Burlington, Vermont? I probably could. I haven't lived there in over 10 years now. It's a really powerful tool, as you know. And I think the thing that's so interesting is no other platform is the same. And we don't need to kind of go into that. But as long as we've got Twitter, I think we should use it well. I think that points to something really interesting, which is that in terms of finding like-minded people who are really on the edge of evidence-based policy, it's unparalleled. And I think, you know, sort of as an elected official in my time there with that, I learned so much and managed to sort of amplify what I was doing in Culver City and was much more effective with that. But, you know, the engagement, the social capital with your own constituents is a little different. And I probably learned that a little late. Do you have advice for advocates to help their allies in elected office to build their social capital? Yeah, well, I a couple things, right? Helping connect the dots. One of the things that I think is so powerful is maybe the lawmaker in Santa Monica isn't really familiar that the lawmaker in Culver City is doing this as well. Make sure that if you're an advocate watching that and monitoring that space, you're like, yay, you know, person in Santa Monica, you know what, you should be connected with so-and-so. Like, use it as a cocktail party to connect the dots. One of the things that I know is that I have a lot of time because it's my full-time work monitoring and watching conversations and knowing, oh my gosh, that media person needs to know that XYZ is happening over here. So we all as advocates can be monitoring our little spaces and then helping connect the dots, right? So if someone in Seattle is doing something interesting and they can say, hey, friends in LA, this is happening here and it's been successful, you may want to follow so-and-so. That's the thing, right? It's sort of like cocktail party introductions and you know things like you don't have to be uncomfortable saying, did everybody see this Guardian article or whatever? Because a lot of people don't have time to watch that. So you can literally say, just making sure that hashtag bike Twitter and everyone who's advocating, you know, around parking mandates saw this piece in the Guardian, right? Or saw. And then the other thing that I highly recommend to people, my clients especially, is to watch and get to know the media who are really deeply and well covering your space or your topic. And don't just use them as something to get mad at when (laughs) they don't quite get it right. Start to engage with them way in advance. A lot of media are still hanging out on Twitter because like us, we don't know, there's no place else to go yet. So building relationships with media long before you need to activate them, you know, or sell or pitch them is so smart because you can also be, if you become a trusted person sharing good stuff and not being negative and, you know, trolly on Twitter, which most of us are, you know, nice and not trolly. If you become a convener of this information, that media person is going to notice and want to follow you and see what you're doing. They may never engage with you, but if you occasionally say, so glad Susie Jones wrote about this topic in the publication. You don't have to go into, it sucks that she did a horrible job explaining this, right? Just say, we appreciate that you're covering this. And I will back up with regard to just climate in general. 
I'm monitoring a lot of climate media and there's an organization called Covering Climate that I highly recommend people get newsletters from and all that. You can monitor and understand what media are up against and what they need help covering and how can we insert what we know on the streets about bike advocacy and cities that are doing it well so that when reporters are writing about this, because as we know, bikes, transit, affordable housing is climate action. There may be journalists that need to need help connecting those dots, not in a negative way, but in a, did you realize these dots are connected? Here you go. Be a resource. You're giving away the secret sauce here. It's- <laughs> well, I am. And I and the thing that, thank you for saying that, Alex, because I this is what I do and I get paid decently for it. But I'm also a flipping, like, this is the answer, right? This is the secret sauce. And I wish this for everybody. And so it is a sort of a nonprofit, like, this is really valuable information that I'm watching NGOs and nonprofits and corporations who are forwarding sustainability and climate stuff. They are not leveraging this. They are not engaging. They're just broadcast messaging. They're hoping that they've got this huge press list and that the day that they need that press list to act, they will. Well, you know what? They don't care, right? So no one is understanding how to build engagement and relationships way in advance with no agenda. And that's my secret sauce. And that's what people pay me a lot to do. And I'm happy to do that. But I also, my whole thing is, right, we have to change this world really, really quickly. And this leadership level, peer-to-peer support and really acting and back to the name of my podcast, Living Change, for which I interviewed you and we can talk about that. Living Change and seeing other leaders doing this, we need to reflect that. And there's huge power in all these things I'm talking about for everybody. And a lot of people can't afford to work with me and I'm only one person. So that's why I'm giving it away for free here. We can circle back to some of the high value ad stuff, but it's true. I mean, we have to make big changes in very little time. And the thing you touched on where people are finding each other across city borders and sharing information is really powerful because I think there's something happening in local government right now that hasn't really shown up in the elected space yet. But the advocates know more than the elected officials. Do you kind of see that? Well, I mean, I'm seeing it. It goes back to we as advocates are monitoring very specific stuff, right? And you as lawmakers have a bazillion and a half things to keep track of and to hope to push forward little piece by little piece. So if there's a bike Twitter advocacy group, you can tap into them. If there's an affordable housing group, if there's a local food group, you can kind of easily tap into them. The time it takes to monitor these specific topics and learn what everyone else in other cities are doing or attend, you know, U.S. mayor little groups on the side, no one has time for that. So Twitter is this thing. And I think it's also, if we look at kind of what's happening nationally, you can get the Inflation Reduction Act passed and get all these things for EVs and whatnot. But we know that what's really happening is these really bold local leaders are the ones who are forwarding change quicker and because they're taking bigger risks. And that's why I see cities, you know, really supporting local lawmakers and getting you all to see one another and learn from each other is a huge, huge climate influence. It so is. A lot of people have not yet realized that the world of, um, of infrastructure funding has totally changed. There's still some some momentum to the old zombie freeway widening, but that's not going to last much longer. And advocates really do, I think, need to educate their elected officials. I do. I mean, I think that should be the quote from today's thing, right? Like we we can, as advocates, pound on them and get mad at them, right? And it's the same with the media. We can pound on them and get mad at them. Well, are we behind the scenes just making sure that they know this happened or that happened and just casually making sure that they're kind of up to date and dots are connected? That is a resource that we as advocates can be for them. That's a great point to go to female leadership, because I do think that that's an insight that is gendered, that men are 
maybe not as good at bringing people along mm-hmm. on education and advocacy? I guess that's a fraught question, but has yeah. that been in your experience? Well, and I'm willing to be fraught, right? Because I'm just, <laughs> this is sort of my thing. And I feel pretty confident coming out of really studying marketing to women. With regard to consumerism, women make or influence 80% of purchases. That's some really old stat. No one can ever find the original of that, but we all know that that's obvious. And so if women make or influence purchases, they're influencing a whole ton of other stuff. Women tend to want to connect with one another on shared things. So again, to the podcast, Living Change, I talked with you, I talked with like four other local lawmakers, and it was really fun to talk to a couple of the women that are doing this amazingly well, including a couple from Bike Twitter, Barbara Buffalo from Columbia, Missouri is somebody else I interview, Bowen Ma from North Vancouver, all these are amazing women. And then another woman that I found, thankfully, again, because she was amazing, Robin Lewis, who is a delegate in Baltimore, Maryland. They were talking about, and you talked about this too, riding your bike around as transportation, living change, you are open. It shows, it reflects that you are open to constituents coming up and just saying, hey, you know, high-fiving you or saying, you know, that thing you're doing about affordable housing, I like it or I don't like it or whatever. It makes you accessible. So the thing about understanding how to connect over shared values or a shared sweater color, right, or flip-flops is that it starts as a connection point and then you draw them in and it's so much more powerful what can be done from there. So how can people call you and where can they follow you? Thank you for asking. My website, it's learnedon, L-E-A-R-N-E-D-O-N.com. In that site, there's a podcast page so you can learn a ton about living change and you can go right to a link that will help you listen to the Alex Fish episode. (laughs) And um, the other thing is if you follow me on LinkedIn or Twitter, I have a link tree, which immediately will bring you to all sorts of content, including that you can link directly to the podcast too. So uh, there's a lot of stuff out there. I had a blast on the podcast, and I know you've got a lot of great guests coming. So even if folks don't like me, they should listen because there are (laughs) phenomenal, phenomenal guests coming. Thank you. (laughs) Oh, thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for taking the time this morning. And uh, thanks to everyone listening to Bike Talk. So I love that Andrea is talking about Bike Twitter because that's actually how I know Andrea. Andrea came to Bike Talk, um, our podcast, because I interviewed her and I met her, we became Twitter friends. And then we actually met in real life. Um, she came down from Seattle and we biked around LA. But I think that bike Twitter is so interesting because the conversation is happening there, whether it's housing Twitter, urbanism Twitter, bike Twitter, it, people are talking about, you know, it's it's the electeds, it's the advocates, and it's the media. And it's, you know, all of us just having this huge conversation. It's like being in this incredible room. I- I think the conversation's here. Like talk, right. <laughs> but speaking of, of media engagement, I do want to give a honorable mention, some sort of award to uh, Alyssa Walker, her article in Curbed, My EV is Big and Strong. I'm watching the Super Bowl right now. It's halftime in the Super Bowl. And as you know, we get into the, the weeds on, on bikes and bike infrastructure, th- this kind of thing really hits you, just how much car culture is promoted in America. It's, yeah, it's I have not seen one bicycle commercial on the Super Bowl. <laughs> <laughs> not one? I'm sh- that's actually, we should make a bet. There should be a side bet. <laughs> Will there be even an, an e-bike commercial? Yeah. How is there not an e-bike commercial? Next year. Yeah. Bird. Where's Bird at? Where's their scooter commercial? Nick has an interview with Adam Johnston coming up. And the truth is, each individual 
does have a part to play in spreading the word about about bikes and engaging your audience, whether it be on Twitter, whether it be on Bike Talk, whether it be in answering a letter in your local newspaper, letters to the editor. You know, we, we all have our responsibility to make it safer for our own children, our own grandparents out on the road. Nick, tell us about Adam Johnston. He was on Twitter. His tweet went, we got 300 likes. For him, that was viral. And he tweeted about how he was radicalized when he started to bike commute. So I got in touch with him and here he is. Your tweet was that biking can radicalize a person? Even politically to an extent, that's pretty much what my tweet was actually. I'll tell you from my own personal experience, um, even though I've never had a car, um, I've had the ability to uh, cycle a lot more as a commuter in recent years. And it's really changed my uh, perception how we look at transportation uh, within cities, uh, specifically just the uh, extreme dependency on cars and just how it's uh, affected our environment, our health, and as well as our safety. So I, those aspects have really made me change how I look at cars and just made me more radical towards like the need for supporting cycling as a transportation alternative in our cities, currently in North America, especially. Did you start biking recently? Even though I've biked, you know, since I've been a kid, uh, you know, on and off in my you know, 20s, uh, in recent years, I've really picked it up as a mode of uh, commuter transportation to get to work and, you know, get groceries. And, and especially ever since I bought uh, my uh, small 360 foot square house here, partly I did it for costs. I wanted to save as a measurement of cost because obviously cars are quite expensive, uh, you know, to pay for the car loans, gas, maintenance. Since cycling as my main mode of transportation, I've become radicalized in just how we get around and the need to move towards, you know, getting away from automobiles as our main mode of transportation. It allows me to see the city a lot more, it, um, cycling through trails, uh, bike lanes. Uh, I've gotten to see uh, Winnipeg a lot more, whether it's through our urban forests like Assiniboine Park here to lower income areas and the downtown, the North End, and even in my uh, area of Elmwood, which is working class to lower income. So it's allowed me opportunity to see every aspect of the city uh, that you don't get to see if you're driving in a car. Some people say it's like, once you see it, you can't unsee it. But until you see it, you don't see it. Absolutely. I, I think cycling has, um, you know, through this radicalization, uh, it's allowed me to appreciate the city more. Uh, it's made me a lot more aware of, you know, the traffic issues we've got. And especially recovering uh, from being hit by a car in the fall of 2021, where I was walking my bike across this street here at a local intersection uh, near my house. And I was in the hospital for a month. I had, to had surgery on my right pelvis and my uh, back spine. And I was pretty much couldn't work for a few months. Uh, so a lot of rehabilitation, a lot of uh, reading books on cycling, but also it's it only accelerated my radicalization of becoming less trustworthy of automobiles and wanting to see changes uh, to our transportation system. What is the political radicalization that goes along with that? Just a better understanding, you know, of people and where they come from. There's been a lot of studies I've read that uh, 
despite the conception that uh, cycling is for upper class uh, white men, and it, it's actually not true. There's been a lot of studies that have said that uh, most uh, cyclists who commute or a good chunk of them are uh, of lower to middle income and of uh, color like indigenous, uh, black, and other people of color. One portion of it obviously is um, building those connections, building community within the political space, but also the climate aspect as well. I've become a lot more aware of the need to um, reduce my carbon footprint. And I think cycling has given me that ability and also the ability to advocate uh, as cycling, uh, you know, through better active transportation policy here in the city is important. And I'm also on the board of uh, Bike Winnipeg, which is, uh, you know, our local advocacy group here who uh, does really good work in promoting cycling in the city. So um, just being involved in that uh, and helping them to organize is uh, really important. And in terms of, you know, having a bike in life and politically, it's, it just goes with what I am. You know, I'm very grassroots, a very down-to-earth person. As a Métis person, which is Indigenous here in Canada, which is basically what a Métis person is, is we're European and, you know, Indigenous, but the Métis people in Canada, uh, there's a high population as an indigenous person, my responsibility is to tread on this earth as lightly as we can because they are the original peoples here in North America and we owe it to ourselves to tread as lightly as I can. And I think cycling is one of the best ways uh, through transportation to tread as lightly as we can here. And especially at Winnipeg, we're Approximately 50% of the city's carbon emissions come from transportation. And considering we are a car-centric city, the best way besides public transit to tread lightly to get around is through uh, cycling. A lot of it is financial. There's also a faith aspect as well. There's teachings about the Bible that talk a lot about um, protecting God's creation. And that's what Earth is. And that's what I believe I'm trying to do uh, through my own cycling here. So key aspect. You're biking now in minus, what is it, 35 degree with the windshield? <laughs> Actually, we just got past a extreme cold morning. <laughs> I've had to take the bus the past few days to work, but I did try cycling last night. Unfortunately, my chain got a little, unfortunately got stuck. But um, but yeah, I normally I do bike in the winter with a fat bike to get around. Uh, it's good to have. And yeah, I encourage everyone to try winter cycling. If you live in a winter city at least once, see what it's like. And yeah, you you won't regret it. Cool. You want to give your Twitter handle? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you can go to at Adam Johnston WPG. Connect with me and can definitely engage on cycling as a good low cost form of transportation as well as a good form of exercise. So thanks for being on Bike Talk, Adam. Yeah, no problem. And that was Adam Johnston from Winnipeg, radicalized by biking. Tune in next week where we talk to Lindsay about Krakatoa. <laughs> and how <laughs> bikes were invented. And if you like Bike Talk, pass it around. You know people that are advocates out there. Let them know what we're talking about and give us some feedback with stories that you'd like to hear or feedback that you think our our show needs. Okay, cool. Bye, you guys. And that was Bike Talk. Thanks to co-hosts Lindsay, Taylor, Seamus, and Galen, and Kevin Burton for editing. If you have a story, a tip, or a topic, head over to biketalk.org and send us a message. Talk again next week. Push on a pedal, push on a pedal, get your heart started. Push on a pedal, push it down and up again. Get on your bike, sit on the seat.
Some sun to see their friends and see some trees. So keep it slow and easy, please. Cars are magic, cars are quick. Sometimes a car is just the trick to get to where you have to get in style. But kids can't drive and don't have cars. And some adults also don't have cars, or sometimes choose another way to navigate the town. Now it's all good and it's all great. It's all love. There's no room for hate. We all have to get along and move around. So share the street. And share the road Keep it clean and keep it slow Keep it cool and keep it fun Keep the park safe for everyone And keep it car free So the kids can play Car free to scoot and skate and ride Car free so we all can have a place to safely move outside 
car free for a hundred years car free for a hundred more for you and me for them and they so everyone can get from a to b